competitive 40K network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. And now your host, Tim Penny and the Art of War coaches. Hello and welcome to the Art of War 40K. I'm your host, Tim Penny. I am joined by the Art of War uh, creator, founder, ITC uh, champion, four-time Adepticon winner, LVO winner, two-time WTC winner on two different teams, Mr. Nick Nadavati. Welcome back, Nick. Hello, Tim. Always good to be back. I've missed doing this show. I want to do it more. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we are joined today. Uh, this is going to be a special episode. We are joined today by uh, Mr. Marshall Peterson, who had an outstanding run with uh, an army you haven't really heard about, uh, criminally, in my opinion, in the past couple of months at the uh, Lone Star Open. I believe it was uh, Necrons. Uh, Welcome, Marshall. Tell us about yourself and about the list. Hi. Yeah, I'm pretty new to the tournament scene uh, just this last season. Uh, And I'm just really happy to be here with you guys. And uh, so the list itself, uh, if we want to jump right into that. I want want to give you some praise before we get into the nitty gritty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You totally earned your spot on this show. We're going to go ahead and uh, lavish that praise on you real quick. I was watching the Lone Star Open coverage on Sunday, and I was... I was shocked to see Necrons in top four, not even just sneaking into top eight, because there's always that one guy who sneaks into top eight. But then you made it to top four. That is so impressive with Necrons. Like, how does that feel? Oh, it feels great. Honestly, I'm a I'm a orc player of ten years, a Necron player of one. And so as the Orc Codex was come out was coming out, I was putting together my list and I was like, man, okay, I just need to make this the Necrons big hurrah, see how far I can get. And so getting that uh, far in the competition, it was uh, really a pleasure to be there uh, to play against these other players at the top eight that I had uh, watched on streams before. And it was really cool to just kind of be there, especially be there with sort of an underdog army, get the support from the community that comes from having that sort of uh, underdog coming in. And so yeah. it, was, uh, it was just a great time being there, seeing the different strategies that are played at top tables. I got to say, I was so impressed watching you play, especially you were playing against uh, one of our Warrior members, Oliver Smith, who's a good friend of mine. He's playing the White Scars. He played in the top eight. And I know Oliver's a pretty solid player, and to just watch you kind of sort of wreck him, is was really, it was astounding. So I'm super eager to get into this episode and see how you did it, because yeah. I just, I didn't know it could be done. Well done. Yeah, and I want to point out, this is also like kind of rare, because usually when like Nick just comes to me and just says like, hey, you got to get this guy on the show or whatever, it's usually someone who gave him like a really hard game, like in person. So the fact that like he was watching as a spectator and he pulled you on, like really speaks to like uh, the level of play that he saw. Absolutely. Actually, Blake on our Unbroken podcast, that's when we kind of get people who come close but not quite and kind of ask them how they learn from their losses and what that process looks like. He really wanted to get you on. He's like, oh, it'd be such a great episode. I'm like, no, we are talking about Necrons winning, not Necrons losing. (laughs) That is actually kind of funny because of the three streamed games I was in, two of them were my losses. So uh, most of what people see if they just kind of go and look at what's already out there is uh, the times that I was beaten. You were on stream three times. Wow. All at, yeah, that, all at I was Lone at, Star? Or, or, uh... Yes, at Lone Star, uh, three times. There were the two rounds in the top eight, and then there was one round I was on table four. That's when I lost to Drakari on round five. And you just had so many points, you still 
snuck into top eight. Essentially, yeah. And it seemed like people just kind of wanted to see. It was a very strange Ducari list, especially. And so that playing against Necrons, it seemed like they just wanted that on stream. So I mean, that's that's super cool. And definitely in part two, for you patrons and for you website subscribers, we will go into exactly how Marshall plays against Ducari and all these other factions. But I'm tired of talking about the list without talking about the list. Marshall, what was your list? Fair enough. All right. Uh, so my list, uh, as you guys mentioned, it was Necrons. It was the pregame move, as well as the obsec dynasty. I felt that was really needed. And you'll see why a little bit later. Some of these units uh, do a lot better with uh, obsec. So the first uh, unit I have is just the Viral Construct, the uh, Canoptic Plasma Site that doesn't take up any army slot. And it's there, obviously, for uh, some destroyers that you're going to see in a little bit. Uh, there's a Locust Lord. This is basically my character hunter. His entire job. Uh, well, I guess we'll get into that later, but... Uh, basically, he has the Warlord trait that helps him hunt down characters, give him an extra two attacks if he's only fighting a character that fight phase, as well as taking the Relic uh, War Scythe that has the three damage and ignores Philopanes. He also has a uh, Resurrection Orb, uh, which is pretty important to this list. Then afterwards, I have uh, an Overlord who has the uh, Relic Resurrection Orb that brings people back on fours, and he gives the reroll charges Aura, because this is a pretty combat army, as you'll see. Then finally, there's a Technomancer with a Veil of Darkness, and uh, he's just floating around, bringing people back, doing his job. We've got two squads of five Immortals and two squads of nine Immortals. Uh, you'll notice that there's nine Immortals and nine Lich Guard in each one. That's because it's a very simple way to drop both units down just one. And they basically give you an extra uh, Scarab Swarm every time you do that. Then I have a squad of two Cryptothralls as kind of action monkeys. We've got two squads of nine Lich Guard, a squad of six Scorpec Destroyers, so max the unit there to make the best use of their strats. A Transcendent Catan, he's got Sky of Falling Stars, that out-of-line-of-sight shooting, and a Transdimensional Thunderbolt, which is that Aura Blast. And then we've got three squads of three Scarabs. It's a pretty tidy uh, list, all fits together in a nice little envelope and just one uh, Battalion Detachment. All right, yeah, well, let's, uh, yeah, tell me about the premise of the list. Uh, I Usually when I see these kind of like OPSEC uh, swarm lists back to by Catan, it almost seems like the premise is to maybe not kill the enemy, but just hurt them and hurt them enough where they can't really kill the stuff that's scoring your mission. Is that, is that the uh, basic uh, premise of this list or just uh, walk us through that? So this list was specifically built with the meta in mind. I looked at what armies are out there that would be problematic for me. Uh, specifically, I focused in on Admech and Drakari and the best ways that I would be able to use uh, Necrons in order to overcome them. Uh, and so while it looks like kind of just a hodgepodge of units, everything uh, went into the mathematics and averages behind how well certain meta units would do against them, like uh, 20 blocks of Skatari, uh, Witches, Incubi, etc. And just finding a way that I can basically try and uh, prevent them from beating me. So with that, the size of all these units, specifically the uh, Scorpec Destroyers and the Lich Guard, they're built in such a way that when these meta units of rangers or vanguards uh, or various uh, dark elder combat units come in, they're built to basically have a fair chance, probably about a 60-65% chance on average, of surviving with at least one model. Uh, and that way they play very similar to Death Guard, where I can put them on the table, they do what they do, they just survive. They might not be threatening a whole lot of the board, because admittedly the army is very slow. Uh, but the general idea is that the one thing the Necrons have that other armies don't is you can punish your opponent for not getting that perfect efficiency of wiping out a unit before my turn. And by doing so, that uh, lets those resurrection orbs come into play. Meaning that, say, a Skatari unit comes down, over the course of the game, they're going to have about four big turns with these Skatari blobs. 
And when they're shooting into these Lich Guard and these Locusts, I mean, not Locusts, these uh, uh, Scorpec Destroyers, they have about a 50-50 shot of killing them. And every time that coin flips in my flavor, my favor, uh, it means that the entire unit's going to be able to come back and counterattack. So by using that to my advantage, it basically means that in a strict trade-off scenario, I'll come off on top against these armies. So that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Just uh, hearing you talk about it, because I always see like what Tim said, just spamming out the warriors, the cheap bodies, the twenty-man units to maximize reanimation. And you've gone for that more elite style with immortals and lich guard, I guess, in hopes to try to be durable enough to just tank twenty rangers shooting or something like that. How how did you find that just overall as opposed to like the twenty warrior variations? So I have played twenty warriors before, uh, and I actually took them to the Dallas Open, so it's a very similar environment. And what I found is, uh, if you look at uh, Immortals specifically, um, because that's my alternative troops choice, what I find is, with their extra toughness, their extra save, they're about twice as durable against most everything as a warrior is. Within combat, they're twice as effective because they have double the attacks. They've got double the range on their guns, which is very helpful in this army because as you, uh, if you watch the streams, you'll notice that being able to respond with shooting is one of the difficult parts of the army. And another big part is those big warrior blobs, they were really nice at first, but everybody has a way to deal with them now. And you, it's so easy to wipe them out, and once they're gone, they're gone. And it's a simple matter of, once those warriors get within those 12 inches to shoot, they're not going to live until the next turn. And so it's very rare that you're going to find an opportunity to get a trade up on Necron Warriors. And so I find that going over to these immortals is more efficient as well, because you can pop them forward into a piece of train, be able to shoot out of it, or go raise a banner, or go uh, steal an objective from somebody, and you're not giving up a big unit in the process. If they get a lucky charge off on you, on your screens, or something like that, they're not killing 20 warriors, they're only killing a max of 5 or 9, because that's all that's there. You're kind of setting a very strict cap on how much they can kill if they're targeting a unit. That's really cool. It's almost counterintuitive. Like, you would think you want to run these huge units of warriors, which everyone typically does, because you want to maximize reanimation, minimize the chance they actually kill all 20 models in one go, so you can bring dudes back to life and use the res orb, especially there. And you're kind of, you're dancing that line. You're reanimating, you're using the res orb, but you're also saying if it does go wrong, if I do lose the whole squad in one go, I'm not losing 20 warriors, or I'm not spending 20 warriors to raise a banner or something. I'm using a relatively MSU squad. I mean, sort of. Yeah, especially uh, when you talk about reanimations. Uh, I've, I tend to do very poorly with reanimations, and, <laughs> uh, and especially with people able to wipe units. It doesn't come up very often. Uh, so honestly, I don't really factor in normal reanimation roles when I'm making my lists. Uh, I see it sort of as gravy, a cheap way to do it, and I see the resurrection orbs as really my version of reanimation. My ability to say, okay, this is how I take this rule and bring it to my advantage. Because honestly... Not much reanimates. If you watch some of my games, they'll kill 10 Lich Guard, none comebacks sort of thing. That's crazy. So how do you, like to me, I see that and I definitely noticed that issue. You're not, you're not really trying to make use of reanimation, but you have the reservoir for when you have those opportunities. But like your army's not that durable and it's, it's kind of pricey. When I look at Necrons, it's not unkillable. It's not like Death Guard and it's not um, cheap. It's not Jukari over here. So like what, what does your army, how does it function? So I like to play a game where I essentially like to win by default. I want to give a situation to my opponent where I say, look, if we both sit here in our deployment zones, have a drink, and just run the clock on each other, I'll end up winning by the secondaries I pick or just existing on the objectives, purge the vermin, stuff like that. And I want to force my opponent to be making decisions that either benefit me 
or put them in an exposed position. That's kind of how the, how the army runs. Uh, I'm not very fast, so I have to force the opponent to me. What that allows me to do is, as long as I'm playing that way, it means I can be, get very conservative with who's behind obscuring terrain. Most every game I did, I never came out before turn two or three. That's uh, one big aspect of it. The other is, uh, specifically at this event, uh, when they released the terrain packet, uh, almost everything had heavy cover on it. That was a big change. And that's part of what inspired me to go so hard on these Lich Guard. Because if you have heavy cover, if you're against a combat army like Dark Eldar, it means that your Lich Guard are going to be able to be on the cover, and suddenly you're getting two up saves or three up saves in combat against their sixes to wound. And it means that your durable units are just that much more durable. Very hard to dig through them. Another part of the army as far as durability goes, because like you said, you look at them and you're like, man, they're not really that durable. But uh, as the people uh, commenting on the stream mentioned, everything in my army is toughness five, except for my scarabs. And so they're not so much durable on their own account, but they're durable because there's so much admech and drukari. And so what everybody's bringing are low AP weapons at strength four or five. And by having these toughness five units with a high save, I'm able to tech into that and say, look, I'm the opposite of what people are scared of. People aren't going to be ready for it, and that means that my Toughness 5, these saves will go that much further. It's an extra minus one to wound, essentially, and then uh, that save and those heavy cover points really just stack up. Yeah, I can totally see that. A great use, really, trying to play the known factors of the tournament. I know John Lennon did it with the Battle Sanctum, which we got on last week for Art of War, but um, you're doing it, too, with the use of heavy cover and changing the unit types you have, because heavy cover is not a commonly seen thing. For those of you who aren't aware, heavy cover is basically... Uh, you get plus one to your saving throws in close combat if you're in heavy cover, which most tournaments just don't rule things with heavy cover. Ruins typically don't have it, and tournaments are generally made of ruins, but frontline LSO did rule all the ruins and whatnot had heavy cover, so you just stand there and taking awesome saves. That was really cool fun. I didn't catch that. Yeah, and that with the uh, so the heavy cover uh, call that they made for this event, that was really what helped me against Drakari. And then you look at the uh, the massive amount of obscuring. Even the forests were obscuring. The hills were obscuring. Everything that wasn't a crate at this event was obscuring. And so heavy cover made this list great against Drakari, and then the obscuring really helped it against Admech. Let me play that game of, hey, you come out so I can kill you uh, because you can't get me unless I do. Yeah, I'm super excited to talk about your plans for Drakari and Admech both because those are two armies that I would say are just simply better than Necrons, and you're out here saying, I got this. So we'll get to that in part two. But you said something earlier that I really want to touch on, and it, it resonates with me because it's exactly like my play style. You said um, you want the default state of the game to be you winning, meaning if both players just sit there in your deployment zone doing nothing, you will win that game by virtue of how the points fall down. So how do you, how do you make that your strategy successfully, and what does that actually look like? So what that looks like on the table is a very defensive uh, play style as far as my positioning. Uh, it means that... I kind of see my units and they have this aura of a threat range where I'm basically able to place them behind uh, obscuring terrain on some objectives within a certain distance of central objectives so that if somebody comes out, I'll be able to take them down. I want to scare them back into their deployment zone. Um, without going too much into specific details, that worked several times in missions where we would get to turn three and I would be winning, as I said, by default. And I'll talk about how that goes to secondaries and primary in a minute. But oftentimes, the opponent, unless if they're really on top of it, they're not going to really be checking the score and making estimations and calls on, okay, 
by turn four or five, how are the points going to look? They're not going to be doing that on turn one and two. So oftentimes we'll get to turn three or four and they'll think to themselves, oh man, I'm actually falling behind on points and I got to make a big push. And by then it's too late. That's absolutely what you, you just said is you hit the money on the head right there. I can't even words with right now. Um, one of the things I preach in the war room probably seven or eight times a week is whenever you're not sure what to do or you're not sure what the board state is, make a points projection. Try to predict how the points will land, which you're saying most players don't do, which is absolutely true. And you're not really dying. You're also not really killing that much. I could totally see how players get complacent with that and be like, oh, I'll probably find a way to win somewhere. Um, little do they know you're racking up points behind the scenes. So how do you actually rack up points behind the scenes doing this? So with Necrons, uh, especially against Admech, Purge the Vermin is a really good one. Uh, because if I'm able to make those auras, as I mentioned, with my big units, where they look at my Lich Guard, they look at my Scorpex, uh, I can basically cover my half of the table with the threat range that they impose. Meaning that unless my opponent has a bunch of small units to, th to throw away, oftentimes it'll be very hard for them to sort of keep that down. Then I'll sometimes pair that up with another objective, uh, which forces them to do the opposite. A uh, common tactic that I was using this tournament was taking Purge the Vermin and also something along the lines of Grind Them Down. What that would do for me is it would force the opponent to either give me one or both of those secondaries by throwing out these small units. If they're throwing small units into my lines, I'm killing them, I'm getting Grind Them Down, and then I'm getting Purge the Vermin anyway. But they see me racking up all these points on Purge the Vermin, and they think, man, I gotta put some people back there and try to stop him. So it forces them to overcommit into my lines if they want to deny me points, which is just coming into the jaws of all these heavy combat units. So by doing that, I'm kind of playing the mission where they look at it and they say, okay, my best bet, honestly, just and I grind them down and stay in my own deployment zone. And so with that, in the primary, I'm able to rack up a lot of points that can kind of sneak up on my opponent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So like that to the last, I could see going really effectively there. Like A lot of secondaries that come kind of later and without doing much, I guess. Yeah, to the last, definitely. Uh, raise the banners when there's enough in my deployment zones, very common. Purge the vermin, and then only grind them down if I feel like it uh, would be more beneficial as far as playing uh, against my opponent. Now, it's really interesting, your secondaries here, because usually when you hear players talk about secondaries they achieve, like kind of their go-to secondaries they build towards, it's usually engage in all fronts slash strangleholds from that battlefield supremacy category. It's usually retrieve Octarius data and maybe to the last or something like that. Or a, a specific book secondary. And you're you're not doing that. You're doing purge the vermin. You're raising banners. You're grinding them down to the last. Like, what made that approach for you? And how did you find that to work? Well, with Retrieve Octarius data, this army does have ways of doing it. I can spend one CP, put some Cryptothralls and Immortals into reserves. I have Veil so that I could pull it out for later on. Uh, but the simple fact is, since I am playing this game of I don't kill you, you don't kill me, and I try to win by default, that doesn't often play well into things like Octarius data or uh, Engage in All Fronts. Because with Necrons, Engage in All Fronts gets really expensive you're just tossing out small units. And then with Octarius data, I'm leaving my opponent alive enough that they're able to screen out their deployment zone. It's very rare that when I took Octarius data in extreme cases, I almost never got more than the eight points. Uh, Stranglehold, on the other hand, uh, you touched on that. It is actually a very good secondary for me, but it's not something I tech into because it only comes into play on those very specific five-point missions. Uh, but it does make it very easy for my army. Just throw out some scarabs, their obsec. Uh, that's how I did it against a lot of different combat armies, just stole some objectives from them. Stranglehold is actually a pretty easy one, but only on certain missions. So you would never stranglehold on a six-objective mission? Uh, not often, because if I'm looking to get my three objectives, 
and then deny them the fourth one, I don't have that much shooting. So if they're a smart player like some of the people I ran into later, I'll often go into those later turns without any shooting, and I won't be able to get Stranglehold anymore because they'll be able to uh, be on the objective behind Obscuring, and there's not much I can do without overcommitting. So in a way, your army is kind of a points factory, and by that I mean it's just doing its own thing, kind of ignoring your opponent and just set up to score up a lot of points on its own. Do you find that there are other armies that do the exact same thing uh, in their own unique way. So maybe some armies like Richard Siegler's Tau as an example, just designed to, they're going to score to the last. You're not going to stop that. They're going to engage in all fronts for 15. You're not going to stop that. They might retrieve Octarius data for 12. You're not really going to stop that. Maybe you can keep them to an eight and uh, their primaries will probably be similar to yours unless you really start getting aggressive. So if their plan is to score a bazillion points and your plan is to score a bazillion points and you end up on the wrong end of that score projection where you're down, you're, you know, you do your thing, he does his thing and you're down a few points. How do you make that transition to you actually winning the game? That is a great question. Something I actually ran into. I got against uh, my my second round against a Sorotus player. I made that points projection turn one. He showed me his secondaries. I showed him mine and I said, okay. If we did the win by default, right now my opponent wins by default. And I saw that, and uh, it really just structured the way I had to play the game. It meant that I had to play in such a way that not only was I scoring up my points factory, but I had to look at what point in the game do I have to make a push so that I can flip that around. And sometimes that might be turn two, three, four, or even five if the uh, the points projection is close enough. I just want to make sure that I have a early enough push that I'm able to shift that table back onto my side, but a late enough push that I'm not left to turn four and five without much on the table. What, how do you determine that? That's pretty, I mean, it's great. It's a great answer. And really what you're saying right here is, is changing the tempo of the game and, and swinging that momentum. But how do you determine at what point you need to make that push? So in determining what point, you can kind of look at the points projection. For example, say my opponent had uh, to the last, which isn't something that I would really be teching into. They can often get full points if I'm not putting pressure on them. So if my opponent had to the last, I could assume they would have a full 15 points. If they're like uh, many people and they're just guaranteeing a 15-point uh, scoring on engaging all fronts, that's another factor. And I could say, okay, uh, let's assume that they get the full 15 there. And then they might have something else like Stranglehold or something else along those lines. If I have secondary objectives and I estimate those, and if my opponent has this factory where they're winning by default, I try to pick out a very specific secondary or many times primary, especially with this army, that I can kind of nitpick on them. Uh, that's how it happened with a couple of games. I was able to say, okay, this person took Stranglehold and I have all obsec. So if I just really pile my army onto three objectives, they'll never get that secondary. And then even though they have such a big lead that I can't stop with these others, I can focus on one, pull that down, and that'll be the big enough difference. And especially missions that are hold two, hold three, hold more, generally I'll lean more towards the primary as it's very easy for me to steal away, throw some scarabs there, advance up some crypto thralls here, and it's very easy to pull those primary points away. If I can do that early enough, I'll even fall back again and say, okay, I've denied them, say, 10 points on their overall primary. If I get them maybe two five-point turns uh, or maybe a zero and a five, and once that happens, I can look at the final score, assume they still get max points on secondaries, and as long as I follow my plan, I would still win. So it was very common that all my opponents, I think my opponents actually averaged about 80 points, even on the losses. And so it was very, I wasn't denying many points at all, just enough that I was able to come out on top at the end. That's really cool. I, I love the way you, you broke that down. Like, yeah, that's very, very measured way. Like that was... 
I thought like textbook example of how to determine tempo and a concept I don't think we really talk about enough, which is basically determining the attacker and defender. The defender being the person who is winning by default if the status quo is maintained. Uh, and then the attacker being the person who is uh, not winning and the onus is on them to do something on it to change the game state. Uh, that was a very, very, very uh, good explanation of one, how to determine that and how to determine that in a timely manner. And then how to change it. Because just because you're the attacker or the defender at the start of the game doesn't mean that's not going to change at some point through the game uh, one or multiple times. Oh yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, switching from attacker-defender and the plays that come with it uh, is a very important part. In the Dallas Open, I had a similar play style. And what I found is oftentimes, if I got myself to the point where I was the defender, uh, if we're defining it by that, where the defender is the one who wins by default, I often find myself just pulling back all the way into my deployment zone. That makes total sense. Conserve, uh, conserve your material, you know. And uh, in fact, that way, if the tempo changes again, you have units you can throw out. You know, you haven't let the, your opponent reduce your material for no reason. That uh, that kind of leads me into the next. We talked a lot about secondaries. I kind of want to hear a little bit more about uh, about the primary and how you play that. You know, is your default kind of state just kind of you know treading water and like just getting ten each turn, or you you try to uh, push a little bit more? And, you know, try to go for those fifteens earlier. How do you, how does that does your games technically look like 10, 10, 10, 10 or is it more like 10, 15, 15, 15, or how does that look like uh, at the end of a game? Well, that depends a lot on my opponent. It would have to be uh, depending on their army and how it plays. Uh, for example, against a Mechanicus army, uh, I often would be totally fine with a 10, 10, 10, 10, uh, especially if I know that that's probably what they'll be getting as well, since they generally hold back, they're not pushing onto central objectives, things like that. Uh, so the, for the primary for my army, I'll generally go for a 40, 45 overall, and... Uh, if I find that my opponent is a very combat-oriented army, I might hold back and then push forward later, because they're going to do the first push to try and get into their positions, at which point I'll just have my job to take them off of their own objectives. Uh, versus, for example, a game against White Scars that I had, uh, I knew that his damage output really only came into play turn three onwards, especially against my Lich Guard or Scorpex. And so I needed to get my primary on the first couple turns there. Uh, so I would say the primary and my plan with the primary really comes along with what my opponent's army is planning to do and what window is best for me to go for those primary points. A lot of times when I see people playing these like OBSEC, uh, Eternal Conquerors, or Re Relentless, whatever it's called, the, the Necrons are pregame moving their OBSEC, the same stuff you're doing. Whenever I see people run those Necrons, it's generally a very forward-heavy pressure army, lots of rates, more scarabs, maybe more scorpic destroyers, veiling warriors in their face turn one, all pressure all the time. Who cares if I got tabled? If I pin them in the corner for a few turns, then they can't catch back up by the end of the game. And you're not going for that in the slightest. You're like, I'm going to stay on my half of the board and try to win. What is wrong, or why don't you try that former approach that's kind of more commonplace, and why are you trying this instead? I guess you're the Necron players doing well, so school us all. Uh, well, I guess that comes down to something uh, that I would describe as comparative advantage. Uh, you can look at something and say, okay, maybe it does this really well, like you said, the forward uh, pressuring obsec. But the comparative advantage doesn't look at what your army does best. It looks at in a spectrum of uh, what does your army do best in comparison to everything else that's there. If I wanted to play a forward-moving pressure army, I'd probably rely on Drukhari. They just do it better. They have more units that push forward harder and hit harder on the enemy. 
And most of them, uh, especially witches, are already obsex, so there's not that much of a difference. Then on the perspective of the uh, heavy teching into Strength 5 AP2 that happened early in the edition, you saw that fall away because that comparative advantage no longer applied once Admet came around and we're doing the same thing but better. So essentially, I didn't go for those more common two approaches because, especially with Necrons, you just have to say, what can we do better than anyone else? Because otherwise, you're just better off uh, switching armies at that point if you go into a different tactic that someone else can do better. I absolutely love that answer. It's so clinically well-spoken, my God. Right? Yeah, I'm about to go like delete half my battle scrub list now because now I feel like I have to look through all of them through a new lens. Uh, speaking of lists, I want to circle back around. Um, I can't believe I just used that term. I just that's that is total work talk coming in. Spe- circle back in. around. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, I, I can't believe I just used that. But we're gonna push right ahead. There it is again. We're gonna talk about your <laughs> list. Um, a lot of the stuff we've seen. I I remember when Necrons came out. Everyone was so hyped about the models, and there there are cool models. It's a really cool line. Um, but man, a lot of people are just kind of like they glaze over when they hear like you know destroyer unit number th- like three or destroyer unit number five. You know and I just want to like talk about some of your units and like what they actually do and just really break that down. Let's start with the um, let's start with the Scorpex. Like I know they're choppy. I'm like I'm looking so at this as question. like replays. Uh, so as far as what they actually what do, do they actually do? Uh, you can look at them on paper and see what they're supposed to do is to run up and chop up things that are sort of medium elite. Uh, maybe two, three wounds, small vehicles. However, what they actually do in the context of this army is, as I was talking about with those sort of threat range auras controlling the board uh, behind obscuring terrain, since they move their extra two inches, it means that that extends their aura a little bit more. Um, In addition, they uh, have their two damage weapons, which are sort of efficient here and there, but most importantly with the Scorpex, the only thing that sets them apart from, for example, taking another unit of Lich Guard is their one CP strat for minus one to wound. I specifically took them because I looked at the current meta and I said, okay, a lot of things that I'm going to be seeing are uh, Rangers in Admech, you're going to be seeing Witches in Drakari, you're going to see uh, Lightning Claws, uh, Adeptus Sororitas with their damage uh, strength for attacks. And what that strat means is you're able to use that one CP strat, and suddenly you have a block of 18 wounds with a two-up save in hu- cover and heavy cover that everything that is in the current meta is wounding on sixes. So the only boogeyman for them, admittedly, are... Uh, the admic the auto wound with their guns but that's basically their job is they're just hyper durable through that one cp strat and then they just exist and they're scary and if you watched my games you'd see they don't actually do that much uh, but they are a good push unit especially if i'm taking while we stand because they are cheaper than lich guard yeah i watched some of their games and like definitely it was, it was kind of interesting to hear you talk about how your army just kind of exists almost it's, it's like almost like you just kind of occupy 51 percent of the board you know and just churn your points out but when you look at your list, like I look at your list, and it looks like you're going to come come get me in my deployment zone. You know, there's not much long range shooting. There's a lot of melee. There's some durability. Um, not as much more durability than uh, meets the eye. Listening to you talk about it, it's kind of crazy. Then your score pick just kind of sit there and just vibe with people all game. Um, tell me about uh, some of the other stuff. Makes sense, but uh, like one of the things that really caught my eye was the Locust Lord. What's he doing here? Like, why, why him instead of something else? I'm so happy you asked him. I, I've never seen a Locust Lord on the table. Don't even know what this guy looks like. I had to, I had to look it up what it looked like just now. I was like, oh, that guy. Like, it was like a kit bash. Like, I was like, is that even a real model? Like, yeah, tell me about him. <laughs> oh yeah, so that's a kit bash. It's a, it's a Necron spider. Uh, its head is cut off and it's replaced with a top half, half of a adjusted Locust Lord. 
Um, and he plays an interesting role in Necrons. I find that with Necrons, especially obsec Necrons, you'll find that characters are actually a good way to hold objectives and negate it to your opponent. Uh, when I was talking about trying to keep my opponent off of me and just make them say, you know what, I'm better off if I don't push forward. Characters on objectives are a great way to do that. Uh, so part of what this Locust Lord does, and it did it in a couple games, is if you put him forward, you put him in the middle of an objective. An opponent can commit a lot of their army to coming around whatever piece of train he's behind, putting shots into him, and fighting him. But Necrons have that 1cp strat that any infantry character, which he is, you can spend 1cp, and on a 4-up, they get back up at the end of the phase. What that can do is it can say, okay, I have this objective in the middle of the table that I don't necessarily care about, but hey, it'll give me a full 15 if he stays there. And then I can have my opponent overcommit units to try and kill him, and then know in the back of their mind, should I even do this? It's a 50-50 shot that anything will happen anyway. And so characters are a great way to do that. So that's his job, is he kind of pushes forward. Uh, you'll see that in the uh, Sean Naden game. He pushed forward, he sat on an objective, and just kind of held it and said, look, you don't really want to come after me, because I'll just stay here anyway. His second job is he has the Warlord trait for the extra attacks and the damage 3 weapon. That means that when he does push forward and he's on those objectives, uh, he can kind of go character hunting, especially against Admech. Uh, he's a really good person to just move forward, hold on that objective, push forward again, try to kill a character, and then if he reanimates himself, you know, go and kill another character. Plus, uh, a Locust Lord is much better than a... Uh, sorry, yeah, Locust Lord is better than a Scorpec Lord, because uh, even though they're about similar in damage output, the Locust Lord can have one of those Resurrection Orbs. And it just gives me another opportunity to punish an opponent if they don't perfectly uh, kill a full unit of Lich Guard or Locusts. So that's kind of just his job. He's just an annoying uh, move up the table, uh, offer some reanimation, hold objectives. He's also one of your few units that has fly, right? Uh, yes, that is true. I feel like that's important, but maybe I'm wrong. Like uh, it is important, yeah. Uh, I mean, he is infantry anyway, so the fly doesn't come into play too often. Uh, the fly rule mostly helps for that character assassination aspect. Uh, if they don't fully circle around their character, it makes it a lot easier for him to charge in. Gotcha. So another thing that I think is really interesting is your, your Satan. I know a lot of people have love-hate relationships with Satans. I typically see like multiple or zero in Necron lists. You've gone for one, and it's not the Nightbringer, which I, I know a lot of people typically take the one Nightbringer just to have some counterpunch type thing. What's the thought behind this guy? So the thought behind this uh, Catan is I actually ran a three Catan list for a couple of months and did very well in tournaments. But once a bunch of transports came out, they really lost their touch because they're really about slowly weakening multiple units. Um, so the Catan shows up in the list, this list specifically and plays a really weird role that people don't often expect. Uh, he is essentially a basilisk that hunts down Skitari. That's the main reason that I put him in this list. Uh, with his Sky of Falling Star's power, and with the transdimensional Thunderbolt, out of line of sight, he's killing about five Skitari a turn, and then within line of sight, about two or three a turn in addition. No and one knows your fake Necron words. What do those do? Ah, gotcha. Sky of Falling <laughs> Stars, you pick three units, and you roll a dice for each unit. If it's not a six, and lower than the models in the unit, so against most uh, Skatari or sometimes uh, Sisters, um, if they're taking bigger units, you're looking at basically anything but a six, so a, a five out of six chance of taking D3 mortal wounds. And that's on three different squads. Uh, so you take that, and it's a perfect average of five mortal wounds or five dead Skatari a turn. And that's out of line of sight. So he's able to move forward, pick the three big Skatari blobs that are out there, and just kind of weaken each one a little bit. And then he has Transdimensional Thunderbolt. 
Transdimensional Thunderbolt is 24 inches within line of sight. On a two-up, that unit takes D3 mortal wounds, and then that unit has an aura around them of 3 inches. That on a four-up, anybody within that aura uh, takes a mortal wound. So that's, again, really good against those Katari blobs. Use it on one of them. Generally, they're big enough that they're close enough to some others to do a couple mortal wound splash damage here and there. In addition, the Katan is also nice because in your back pocket, you have the other powers that you can switch to in your command phase. Uh, so, for example, trans, uh, the arrow, times arrow. What this power does is the sniping power, where you can pick a character, and, or any unit technically, but you usually use it against characters. And you roll a dice, and if it's equal to or greater than their wounds characteristic, they're just gone. That's really good, especially for these cheap characters, uh, such as uh, Succubi, uh, Skatari Marshals, these really nasty units that just you don't want to really have to deal with, and it's just so much nicer if you can just pop them out. But mostly it's just operating as an out-of-line-of-sight bomb. I've, all, Time I've always wondered Time about... Time Zero is also hilarious against uh, Custodes. I've seen Necron players use it devastatingly in that matchup, where they don't even go for the characters. They just, you know, 50% chance you just pick up a you know, uh, just a basic uh, infantry dude from Custody's list, and that adds up like really quick. Yeah, for sure. I've never, I've always wondered how people who have that rule actually use it. Do you go character sniping with it? Like, are you trying to roll a six against Succubus, or like, what's your plan there? Well, honestly, uh, smart players won't bring out their characters in order to be sniped, but that's just another thing that is operating in my favor. Again, I just want my opponent to stay where they are. If they don't come towards me, that's great. That's exactly what my plan is. So if they know that time zero could come out, oftentimes I never even spent the CP to bring it out, just the knowledge that it was there. Uh, Inquisitors don't come out from hiding. Uh, Psychers don't come out. Apothecaries don't follow combat units because they don't want to be uh, time zeroed. And it just kind of pushes back these support characters. They're not always where they need to be. And I, I didn't really use it that much, honestly. Yeah, I could see that. Just the threat of it scares the crap out of me, so I'm going to act very differently, and there's a good like hidden value to getting your opponent to act differently. Exactly, so, yeah. There's another question I have kind of to round out your list discussion here. Um, there's like a good mix of large units and small units in your army. We got two units of five immortals, three units of three scarabs, two cryptothrells, and then nine main lich guard, nine main lich guard, nine main immortal, nine main immortal. How do you strike that balance? Like, What makes you determine your squad sizes? And then like, where do you know to allocate your points? So I kind of like to divide my list uh, between what I consider an important unit to live and an unimportant unit to live. Uh, for example, in the important units to live, you've got the two Lichguard squads, you've got the Scorpex, you've got the Catan, uh, you've got some of the characters, and to some degree, the big immortal squads. On the other side, you have the ones that you don't care about living, uh, being the three Scarab units, the two small immortal squads, uh, the Plasma Sight, which can sometimes be played in an interesting way, and then those two Cryptothralls. I strike that balance by basically saying, since I have obsec and I want to be denying my opponent points, especially if they take something like Stranglehold, or if it's a hold two, hold three, I just look at the missions and I say, over the course of blank number of turns, how many units would it take to throw forward to cause enough problems for my opponent that they don't score points? For example, say it's a six objective mission in which you need to hold two, hold three, hold more. I would look at it and say, okay, my big three units, my Scorpex, Lichguard, and Lichguard, will hold the three objectives that I care about. At that point, there's only two objectives in my opponent's zone that if I steal from him, I'm making him have zero points. In order to win a game, I need to take my opponent down to those zero points only twice. 
So I take about four units, those would be uh, probably the scarabs and maybe one of the other small units, and I can throw those forward and make those just denial units. They go up, uh, they take out points, and then they die. And I want just enough that I can do that every mission, uh, and always have some small unit that I can just throw out, not care about where it goes, steal some objectives away. So that's kind of where that balance comes in. I want enough where I can hold my objectives, and then on the other side, the ones that I don't care about living, just enough that I can really mess with my opponent to the amount where that flops me back into the defender slot if I ever fall out of it. Gotcha. All right, well, you, uh, I'll be honest, you've, uh, you've talked about the uh, plasma site twice now and kind of hinted at it. I want to hear about it. I feel like this is the best way to uh, wrap this up. I want to hear about this little guy and what he does. Yes, the plasma site. He's 15 points of pure annoyance for my opponent. He has this nifty rule where essentially near any of the... Uh, Destroyer units, that being the Locust Lord or the Scorpex. If he's within three inches of them, uh, he cannot be targeted uh, in the same way as a character. Uh, you have to be closer to him than anything else. Uh, so basically, what that means for him is he will stay near the Scorpex, and I don't want my Scorpex touching onto terrain and being visible to being shot. That is something I do not want. What this plasma site allows me to do is especially in the terrain setup that they had where most terrain was about three inches thick you couldn't have a terrain piece behind an objective and be able to be on the objective without touching the terrain what the plasma site did was it allowed the scorpex to be behind the terrain and obscuring and then you have the plasma site in front of them on the terrain not obscured but not targetable because he's close to the scorpex it lets them be on an objective while not being on an objective. And as long as you have some scarabs hiding out underneath a wall that's too tall to see them or anything like that, that scarab is simply not targetable. Uh, you saw me use that in the final round that I played where the, he was on that objective, uh, tied up with the Locust Lord who was behind obscuring, and then the Catan was in front of the uh, Canoptic Plasma Site, which completely prevented my opponent uh, from being able to take that objective. Nice. I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, we're starting to see a lot of that with the uh, with the Marine bodyguards and now the uh, Sister Sacrosense. And uh, you know, I thought the um, I thought the Crypto Thralls, uh, I believe it was, were the only way to do a Necrons. But you just managed to uh, basically leverage that mechanic uh, in a completely different way. That's really clever. Yeah, the list basically can do that same tactic three different times. You can do it with the Crypto Thralls behind obscuring with the Crypt Tech touching the terrain. You can do it with the uh, the Lich Guard, they have bodyguards, so you can do that with the Overlord. He can touch on the objective while they're in the train. And then the same thing with the Scorpex and the Plasma Site. Between those three, you can basically guarantee that you have three objectives that you can't be shot off of. One thing you mentioned a lot throughout the episode, and I don't think we've touched on it, is how you've built your list to play on the terrain, or at least play this terrain format really well. Now, LSO had player place terrain and very specific kinds of terrain, being lots of heavy cover, and uh, as you said, these ruins that have more that are more than three inches thick, so it's hard to hold objectives while not being in them. How much do you think terrain impacts your army, and how would you change it for different formats? Uh, it definitely impacts the army a lot, uh, especially against Admech. I feel that without that much obscuring, it would make the army a lot harder to keep safe. And I think that if there was a little bit less terrain, I might even consider taking smaller units. Uh, just so that even if I can't fit everyone behind obscuring, at least uh, some units are kept safe. Uh, but I definitely think the terrain did influence a lot of my decisions, a lot of the math that I ran for how big the units needed to be, uh, for how many units I needed to have, how many throwaway units. A lot of that depended on the terrain once I knew what was there. So I'll generally try to know what sort of terrain sets my meta is using, whether that's the frontline gaming terrain, some MDF terrain, uh, 
And I, I like to know that just so I can kind of keep that in mind when I'm building my list. Because as you mentioned, uh, I had my, uh, for example, four big units of combat. And generally, those missions came with at least four big units of obscuring. And so my army is kind of tied in very closely. It's a, in a close relationship with the terrain that's there. Uh, it's kind of hard to see one without the other. Yeah, it definitely seems that way. And I, you know, some people who might want to copy these results at home might have mixed results. But at the same time, like every event is its own unique individual beast. So I love that you tailored your, your list to a degree to play on this terrain format with the knowledge you knew you had going into it. That's exactly how you do well at these things. Yeah, I mean, with Necrons, you got to take whatever advantage you can have, right? Right. No, I mean, I, I do it too. Like, if I know there's going to be crap terrain, I'm not going to play, like, made of paper Drukhari at a tournament, for example. Um, one final question before I pass this off to Tim. Is there anything you would change about your list in hindsight after the event or any other things that, you know, maybe variation differences you would include? Uh, yes, actually. Um. Something that I did notice that I lacked a little bit. I lacked a couple ways to steal very far back objectives from people. Uh, with that, I, I might consider looking into flayed ones in the future, actually. Just being able to deep strike them down, charge in, uh, or even just use them as a back pocket rod option. Uh, having that kind of forces your opponent to play a little bit differently. Maybe steal a backfield objective. That's something I've been considering. As well as the Locust Lord. Uh, he did a good job with what he was supposed to do, but the Plasma Sight can operate without him. And honestly, the characters that were scared of him, they're already scared of the Catan. So while I did enjoy him, I think he was a good choice for this event. Uh, it might be worth looking into different things for uh, him specifically. Other than that, the list operated pretty well. So as far as changes I would make, I think those would be the first two things I would look into. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Marshall. You've given an awesome interview. Tim, you have any other questions for him? No, I don't have uh, any other questions at all. I'd say let's go ahead and... Uh... Wrap this up, uh, move on to part two, start talking about those matchups. Uh, Marshall, do you have anything to uh, plug uh, right now before we uh, close this out? Yeah, sure. Uh, so actually, I own a uh, painting studio. It's called Holy Terra Gaming. You can find it at holyterragaming.com. Uh, we've done work for studios such as Tabletop Titans, and uh, we do really good in squad-by-squad squad commission painting. Uh, so if you want to find a way to get an entire army ready, uh, whether just because you don't enjoy painting 100 goblins or because you want to get ready for the next tournament, uh, go ahead and check us out. I think it's really worth your time. Awesome. All right. Well, yeah, it sounds great. Um, definitely have to check them check them out. It's been getting harder and harder for me to find time to paint my stuff. Um, and I think I've heard of you guys, and I've seen some of your pictures, and it looks like really good stuff. Uh, we're going to plug the uh, our own uh, site, the theartofwar.40k.com. Uh, if you go ahead there, if you like uh, what you heard and this kind of in-depth analysis, you want to talk to some of the top minds uh, in 40K, you can head on over to the, uh, the artofwar40k.com and subscribe. You can subscribe to part two of this podcast where we go deep into the uh, matchups. And the artofwar40k.com, we talk about uh, matchups, clinics, stream games, uh, strategy, tactics, you name it, we have it. So go on over there and sign up and we'll see you guys part two. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under, where we break down armies and new rules. Theartofwar40k.com This episode was brought to you by the Competitive 40K Network.